You're listening to Red Leg Nation Radio, the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Red Leg Nation Radio. I'm your host, Chad Dotson uh, from RedLegNation.com. Appreciate you downloading the podcast today. And we've got a pretty special guest again this week. Mark Frost uh, is an author that I've been familiar with for a long time, even before he wrote the book that just recently was released, entitled Game Six, Cincinnati, Boston, and the 1975 World Series, The Triumph of America's Pastime. Now, Game Six, as Reds fans, we know what that means. We're not, uh, you don't have to tell us what year we're talking about on that. Even though the Reds lost that Game Six, of course, that's 1975, where the Reds won the first of the Big Red Machines, two World Se- back-to-back World Series in the mid-70s. Greatest game in World Series history, many people say. And uh, it's a fascinating story uh, surrounding that game that uh, Mark Frost has sort of uh, pulled together and uh, and uh, told us about in this book. And it's really an interesting book. Going to have a, a more in-depth review of it at RedLegNation.com in the next couple of weeks as we approach the anniversary of Game 6 uh, of the 75 World Series, but Mark was kind enough to join us. And before we jump into the interview, let me just tell you a little bit about him because he's such a fantastic, uh, interesting story uh, about Mark Frost in terms of his career. He's written several best-selling uh, books, both fiction and nonfiction. He came to my attention by a couple of golf books of his that I read, one of which was The Greatest Game Ever Played. as about the 1913 U.S. Open, one of the best sports books uh, that I've ever read. And, uh, of course, was made into a movie that wasn't as good as the book, but still a pretty good movie. Uh, also, The Grand Slam by Bobby about Bobby Jones in the 1930 when he won uh, golf's Grand Slam. And then, of course, uh, he's written one called The Match that's actually sitting on, on my shelf. I've not had a chance to read it yet. But uh, more interesting, I guess, is that... Uh, Mark Frost began his career writing for television, including uh, Hill Street Blues, and then uh, he also co-created and co-executive produced Twin Peaks with David Lynch, and uh, very interesting career. Uh, he's uh, delved into baseball this time around, and a very interesting book, very interesting story, and uh, if you're like me, you can't uh, hear enough about the Big Red Machine. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into our Red Leg Nation radio interview with Mark Frost. With us now is Mark Frost. Mark's an author of a number of books. We'll talk about some of those in a moment. But most recently, Mark has written Game 6, Cincinnati, Boston, and the 1975 World Series, The Triumph of America's Pastime. Of course, uh, here in uh, our Red's, uh, Red Leg Nation, we're pretty excited about anything, any discussion of the Big Red Machine. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Nice to talk with you, Chad. Now, you've written a number of books, and you've written some very well-received golf books. Those are the ones that I have uh, really been most familiar with. Read uh, two of them, uh, The Greatest Game Ever Played, just an amazing uh, story about the 1913 U.S. Open and uh, one of the best sports books I've ever read. And then, of course, uh, The Grand Slam about Bobby Jones. Those I've read. But what inspired you to write about baseball this time around and Game 6 in particular? Well, I was a huge uh, baseball fan as a kid, Played baseball from dawn till dusk every day as a, uh, growing up, and uh, I just loved the game so much. I always felt I wanted to write something about it, and I watched this World Series in 1975 um, religiously. I was not a fan of either team. I was a Dodgers fan in those days, and the Dodgers and the Reds had a great rivalry in the early 70s. So I knew the 
the Big Red Machine really well, and I admired that team a great deal. And watching Game 6, as I recall, I was on a little 12-inch black-and-white TV, um, with maybe even with rabbit ears back in those days. I felt that was the most exciting baseball game I'd ever seen. It, it seemed to just transcend the whole idea of what a sporting event could be and took it into some other kind of epic realm where there was heroism and um, people doing things that you didn't expect and unsung heroes and uh, people coming out of nowhere to do remarkable things and back and forth. That was almost like a heavyweight title fight. And the feeling that game gave me stayed with me all these years. And I, I knew when, when my publisher said, well, Let's uh, let's work on another sport, you know, in addition to golf. Let's let's write a book about some other sport that you truly love. And I I knew immediately that this was the game that I wanted to write about. Well, and you're right. There are a number of storylines in that uh, game that are really just a well, it's a compelling human drama in addition to being just an amazing baseball game. And one of the storylines that you sort of focus on some in the book is that this game came at a unique time, not just in baseball history, but in a lot of ways in American history, but we're talking about with respect to baseball, certainly before free agent and free agency and the change we've seen. Is that one of the reasons you found the story of this single game compelling? Well, yes, it is. I mean, I, I'm always looking for three things when, when I'm trying to find a book that I want to spend, you know, the next two years of my life working on. And, one is that it has to, in and of itself, be a great event within the, the definitions of, of and confines of that sport, and certainly Game 6 fills that um, requirement um, big time. It, it really needs to be then populated and played by interesting and compelling people who have, as you said, great personal stories and um, lots of things going on in their lives that'll that'll make them worth writing about. and. And this game has that uh, in spades on both both sides. Both teams had remarkable people on them. You're, you're looking at over 12 people in the Hall of Fame between the players and the managers and the, the broadcasters. And then the, the last thing is you're looking for a story that takes place in a, in a pivotal moment in the, the history of that sport. And certainly when you think about six weeks after this World Series is concluded, the start of free agency really revolutionizes and, and upends every conception we had about the sport. So it's a watershed moment for baseball. And when you put all those three things together, I, I think you find a unique combination of qualities and factors and people that, that really made this a project that I thought was worthwhile. Now, of course, we're coming at it uh, at Red Lake Nation. Our readers and listeners are coming at it from the perspective of the Cincinnati fan, and it's always been sort of a, a bittersweet uh, game for, for Reds fans in, in that, well, obviously, in the end, we lost the game. Uh, our guys did, but uh, ended up winning the, the World Series in Game 7. But now, to, to look at it from a Cincinnati fan perspective, I think that we've always been fascinated by the relationship between Sparky Anderson and then his big four, uh, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez. and You explored that uh, somewhat in the book. That was sort of a unique relationship, wasn't it? Well, yes. I think you're talking about five very uh, strong, very strong-minded um, personalities. Um, and when Sparky came along, you know, taking over the reins of the club at 35, and Joe obviously came over two years later in a trade, but he really was the guy who pulled all these um, personalities together and I think got them all moving in the same direction. And 
when they made the trade for Joe, which Sparky had advocated and, and made a, a big push for with, with Bob Housem, the GM and president of the club, he felt he really had found the piece of the puzzle that had been missing. The question was whether Joe could get along in that same clubhouse with, with these other three very well-established superstars. And that's one of the really interesting stories behind the Big Red Machine, the way these guys kind of made it work, that that Pete and Joe became, instead of what many had feared would become a, a sort of fierce rivalry, became the best of friends. They had their lockers next to each other. They they kind of pushed each other to, to be the best they could be. You know, Johnny had his own section of the clubhouse carved out, and, and then you look at the unique role that, that Tony Perez played as the guy who maybe didn't have as big an ego as the other guys, had ever been as much talent, but because of that was able to sort of pull them all together. He was the guy who wasn't afraid to uh, to joke around and pull the rug out from under people, but always reminding them that they were a team. And I felt Perez was probably the unique ingredient that bound those those four together and then brought the rest of the team together. And Sparky would be the same to tell you that. It It's a... It's a unique situation. I mean, 90% of the team was uh, grown out of the Reds' farm system, and that's just not a thing we're going to see again in, in baseball. The, the the day of free agency has changed the way baseball clubs are put together. You'll you'll see powerful clubs. They won't stay together for as long, and they probably won't have as much success over time. And I, I think for that reason, along with the ones I've just stated, the, the Reds are one of the greatest teams to ever take the field in the entire history of baseball. Yeah, and I think that does go back to what you were uh, talking about in terms of the being a unique time in history. Uh, not only one of the great teams, and, and some of us would like to argue the greatest team in history, but come at a time when that's probably the the moment when uh, things started to change and you'll never see a team like that. So that makes it a little more special in terms of baseball history for us anyway. Um, yeah, I completely agree. You know, the, the, they mentioned this the other night that uh, the Reds were the first team since the 20s to repeat as National League champions. The New York Giants had done it way back then. And a National League team hasn't done it since. I mean, that's how good these guys were. Right. And I, I, they really do belong in a conversation about uh, the top teams of all time. I know you're a big baseball fan. You've already said that. but And this is always sometimes an, an unfair question. If it is, just call me out on it. But did you learn anything, or was there anything you learned about the Big Red Machine that you really hadn't realized before you tackled this project? Well, I think the role that Sparky played was the, the most um, relevatory to me. I you know, I knew he was a good manager. Obviously, he'd repeated the, the success he'd had in Cincinnati later in Detroit, and everybody always talked about what a great guy he was. But I... I had the chance to actually sit down and watch the game with Sparky and talk through every situation and every inning and every at-bat and really get inside the mind of one of the handful of greatest managers, I think, of all time in baseball. And the degree to which Sparky understood the game and, and the background that Sparky brought to it. I, I was not fully aware that as a kid, Sparky had worked as the bat boy for the great uh, USC baseball coach Rod Dato on that collegiate team for about eight years, and that a very close advisor of Dato's, in fact, had been Dato's own mentor in his career, uh, was Casey Stengel. And that Casey spent every winter during the offseason working with that USC team. So here you have eight, nine, ten year old George Anderson growing up as a kid in LA, learning from the greatest 
collegiate coach ever in baseball, you know, the John Wooden of baseball. Sure. And Casey Stengel. I mean, these are his two mentors. So no wonder he grew up to become a remarkable manager and a remarkable leader of men. And I, I think that was the thing that, that really most surprised me and most impressed me that I didn't really know about the Reds. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they go back and look at that, and this actually happened to me when I started to look back at that uh, Big Red Machine a little closer, is that uh, Sparky Anderson's always been considered a great manager. But uh, you know, when you really look closely at what he did with that team, I think he may be underrated uh, by the public in general because everybody feels like he had all these great players. You know, anybody could have managed that team. But I don't think that's the case at all, and I think that you uh, sort of hit on that in, in your book. Well, that's the easiest knock on a, on a player or on a coach or a manager in any sport. I mean, Phil Jackson gets it all the time. Sure. Saying, yeah, he was just lucky he had Michael Jordan and, and Shaq and Kobe. And Well, it, it, there's a lot more than luck involved, and you really have to know what you're doing, and you have to be so adept at not only baseball but psychology and how to, how to manipulate a team chemistry and how to get them pulling together in the same direction. This is a very difficult thing, and when I looked at that entire World Series, th- these teams were so evenly matched, um, and they played each other to a standstill after those, you know, through six games. And the Reds, as we all know, you know, took game seven in a very dramatic way. I really felt that Sparky was the difference in that series, that he, he so outworked and outmanaged uh, Boston's manager, Daryl Johnson, at that time, that he may well have been the decisive factor, in addition to how great all the players were, as to why the Reds won that 1975 series. Yeah, absolutely. There's an argument to be made about that. and I think any uh, look back at Sparky Anderson uh, can only uh, be helpful to his reputation because uh, just the more, the more I look at it, and I've uh, read everything there is to read about the Big Red Machine and really studied it a little bit, and you just come away more impressed every single time with, uh, with George Anderson. Yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to really founding or introducing to baseball the the way he used his bullpen, which is now, you know, the standard way that a modern bullpen is used, the the, the use of the middle relief guy, the strong relief core that can get you from the seventh to the ninth inning, the sometimes multiple closers that he could go to. I mean, they called him Captain Hook because nobody had ever really pulled pitchers as often as he had in, in anybody's memory. But, in fact, what he was doing was optimizing the arms he had available to him. And I think he, he deserves a lot of credit for what now is uh, considered the way that a modern pitching staff is used. And, and I don't think he's talked about enough in terms of his contribution to that. Certainly, certainly. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, Rod Dado a moment ago, of course, and his influence on Sparky and then uh... – of course, he uh, was the Fred Lynn's college uh, manager as well. So there are a number of storylines here in which these teams are sort of – we talk about the unique moment in history. Just There are so many storylines. And the one that I wanted to ask you about was what you've called the rise and fall and rise of Bernie Carbo, uh, which I think yeah. is an interesting storyline from the book. Well, you know, Bernie was drafted in the first free agent draft in 1965 in the first round by the Reds. They thought that highly of him, um, ahead of Johnny Bench even. And Bernie had languished a little bit in the uh, the minor leagues. He did not, as we know, Bench deservedly made it to the the bigs almost immediately. And from the moment he set foot on the field, he set a new standard for what catchers could do and be in the game. But Bernie struggled to get there, and he had personal problems. He came from a very troubled family, and he had he had drug and alcohol problems that he's talked very frankly about. And 
when Sparky took over the team uh, in 1970, he kind of inherited this this troubled but very talented kid, and he found a way to utilize him. He fit him into that 1970 roster and made the most of Bernie's talents. I mean, he almost treated him like a surrogate son. He he brought him into the um, into his family. He spent a lot of time with with uh, Sparky's kids and, and his wife Carol, and it, it paid off. Uh, Bernie was named the Sporting News Rookie of the Year in the National League that year. Now they had a terrible falling out. The uh, two seasons later, wh- when uh, Bernie had felt he deserved a bigger contract and got into a actually a physical fight with GM Bob Housen, um, he just lost control of his temper and and actually assaulted Housen in his office and. They just couldn't tolerate that as, as a team member, and so he was sent to St. Louis in a trade, and he and he didn't do well there. He didn't fit in. He didn't feel appreciated, and he finally then moved on to the Red Sox in 1974 in a trade between the Cardinals and Boston, and in 1975 had started to find himself again and had found a role as kind of the fourth outfielder for the Red Sox, a key left-handed bat off the bench, and a, a very skilled pinch hitter. So. He he kind of clawed his way back to respectability, and there was a wonderful moment just before the first game of the the World Series at Fenway when uh, when Bernie sought Sparky out in the outfield. He hadn't spoken to him since he'd left the team three years earlier, and kind of made amends for the the mess that he'd made of of his career in Cincinnati, and um, wanted. To know Sparky to know that he appreciated everything that Sparky had done for him. He never had a chance to tell him, and it's a very moving moment as these two guys kind of sitting alone out in the outfield as batting practice was going on, and and Sparky really taking that in and saying, you know, I've learned a lot in that time too, and maybe I was a little too rough on you, Bernie. And so they 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 mended that fence in a way that was pretty powerful. And then sure enough, they. Uh, the bottom of the eighth inning in Game Six, Bernie Carbo hits one of the most famous home runs in, in World Series history to to bring the Red Sox back and and tie the game and and send it into extra innings. It's a remarkable moment and a great relationship. Yeah, a remarkable moment with so much backstory behind it. I think is what was interesting. And th- there's an anecdote in the book, and I know I'm going to botch this because I'm doing it from memory. But I think after the game, Sparky called home and, and was told basically we were all cheering for Bernie. Uh, yeah, well, he was. Sparky was terribly upset. He, he felt that he had really blown the game. When right. when Bernie was up, Raleigh Eastwick was on the mound, um, and Raleigh was dominating him, but Sparky had this nagging feeling that Bernie was going to do something. And he his instinct kept telling him to get up on the field and pull Eastwick and bring in, well, McEnany, the left-hander, who'd match up better against him, and he didn't do it. And Bernie hit the home run, and Sparky said, it's all my fault. And when they lost the game, he really was terribly depressed and downcast until he got home to the hotel late that night and he, he called home to Thousand Oaks, California to his, where Carol was uh, still up with the kids and started to describe how terrible he felt and she said well you know Sparky i got to break it to you actually we were all rooting for Bernie and <laughs> it was a joke and she pulled him out of it and, and he he actually turned it around and was able to get some sleep and then sure enough he played a huge role in, in their winning game seven. Absolutely. Now, you know, to move away from uh, focusing on the Reds for just one moment, I think it, we can't talk about this book without talking about the fact that much of the story here is an exploration of 
I don't know, I guess you'd describe the many facets of Louis Tiant. Uh, that's a fascinating guy, huh? Well, I remember watching Louis Tiant in his heyday, and this was sort of his golden years, these four years he spent with Boston where, if you count the postseason, he won 20 games four years in a row, which almost never happens in baseball. And Louis Tiant was like the greatest jazz musician who ever pitched in a baseball game. His improvisatory approach on the mound, where he had about five different deliveries and four different speeds and three different release points, and you never knew which one was coming. And sometimes Louis wasn't sure himself. He, he was the most entertaining pitcher I think I'd ever seen. And he, and he had this kind of um, quiet dignity and pride on the mound that was incredible to watch. And he, when you look at his numbers in September and October, he was one of the greatest money pitchers in the entire history of baseball. So he was really the nemesis for the, the Reds in the series. He had shut them out in game one uh, at Fenway. He, he kind of worked his way through an amazing performance to win game four, a complete game, 163-pitch victory against the Reds. I mean, think about that for a second. When In this era of pitch counts and uh, guys worrying about their arms, for a pitcher to stay out there and play a pitch a complete game in the World Series – with that number of pitches thrown. I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore. And then to go in this game um, as the starting pitcher for the, the Red Sox in game six after a three-day rain delay allowed him to come back after that effort, uh, the, that's all the, the amazing stuff he did in the game. And I think you're also referencing the fact that Louie had this amazing story going off the field as well. But right. He had left Cuba when he was 19. His father had been the greatest pitcher in Cuban baseball history, had pitched in the Negro Leagues for 14 years, was com- compared often favorably as maybe the best left-handed pitcher of his era, but he had nothing to show for it. He retired the year before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, went back to Cuba and became a furniture mover. He didn't have any money from all those years in baseball. So when Louis left Cuba to go to the Mexican leagues as a, as a kid when he was 19. His father was really kind of against the idea of him pursuing this career, but Louis wanted to do it. And shortly after he left, the uh, Castro took over Cuba and the Iron Curtain came down. And Louis didn't see his parents for 14 years. He was working his way up, became a star in Cleveland, had married a woman he met in Mexico, had three kids, and they had never met their their grandparents. They had never... Um, and they had never seen their son pitch in a major league game. So uh, through the offices of two senators, Edward Brooke and George McGovern, they, they brought this issue to the attention of Castro in early 1975 and pleaded with him that could he possibly allow Louis' parents to visit America on, on some visas and see their son pitch in the major leagues. They were getting older, they weren't in great health, and, and sure enough, it worked out, and they they got to to Boston in late August. They got to see Louis pitch those games in the World Series, and it's one of the most moving stories I've ever come across in sports. When when he was reunited with his father, um, and they were able to sit up and talk pitching and and see that his son was now a famous athlete in America, uh, who'd made it um, in a way that he had never been able to. Um, it's it's one of the great emotional stories in in all of sports. It is, and it's yet another fascinating storyline behind this story of Game Six. You know, you watch the uh, the games on DVD now. You have to have them on DVD, and you watch and you see Louis Tiant uh, Senior uh, 
there. And then there's a great photograph that's in the book of uh, when they met at the at the airport, you know, and it's clearly emotional. And then you watch Tiant go to the mound, and as you described it a moment ago, just uh, baffling everyone. I think Pete Rose is really vocal about the fact that he had that Tion had nothing. He was just throwing junk. But you watch it on DVD, and, and you read the, the quotes in the book from the players, and uh, it's just amazing how he was able to just uh, I don't, I don't spin a, a game like he was able to spin there in Game 6 with just, uh, I don't know, smoke and mirrors. Uh, really, just the whole story is just amazing. Yeah, it is. And he... Uh, you know, his arm was pretty beat up from that game four performance, and he lasted into the seventh inning in this game on pure guts alone. I mean, he just had so much skill in addition to talent about how to pitch. He didn't he didn't know just how to throw. He knew how to pitch, and he knew how to 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 work with with hitters and and play to their weaknesses and 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 really get the best of them. And you watch him through those first five six innings when he still had his good stuff. Uh, before he began to tire, and it's an amazing array of pitches against the most powerful lineup that baseball had seen in 50 years. And the fact that he was able to do it three games in a row uh, was pretty amazing. Now, one of the interesting things about the book, from my perspective, is that uh, you clearly, I mean, you obviously you spoke to the managers and the players and, and all that, but a lot of the book is sort of an explanation of the people that were there uh, watching and working in the media I think you said in the book that the first person you spoke to about the book was Marty Brenneman, uh, who, of course, right. is a Cincinnati legend himself. Um, how much insight into the game were you able to glean from uh, Marty, for example, and from the other uh, sportscasters and sports writers that were there? Um, well, quite a bit. I mean, I was able to talk to uh, to Marty at length. Um, I was able to talk to Dick Stockton, who covered the game for NBC. Um, this was his first big assignment. Um, he was one of the Red Sox staff announcers that year on television. Uh, and both he and Marty had been brought in um, by NBC to add some local perspective to the broadcast. And then I had the pleasure of talking to Tony Kubek about the game, who I always felt was the greatest color um, announcer I'd ever seen in baseball, a great player himself. Uh, few people ever knew more about the game than Tony. And I don't think anybody respected the game more than Tony. And, uh, their insights were tremendously helpful in, in figuring out the ebb and flow of the game and the, the strategies and the, the way the, uh, the game was being perceived up in the booth and in the press box. So it, that was the idea, is to, was to take this, this evening at Fenway and show it to you from every possible perspective, from, from the groundskeeper, from the, the umpires, from the guys up in the booth, in the control room, from the fans in the stands, from the, the, the players in the dugouts, uh, and on the field, and um, and then finally that feeling about what was it like. I talked to all the pitchers. Um, you know that that confrontation that's at the heart of every game. Um, what was every at bat like? And and sure enough, there was a gold mine of stuff there. And I I hope that people will um, come away from this experience knowing a lot more about what actually goes on in the baseball game. I don't think you can help after reading this book to come away with a better. Uh understanding what happened. Yeah, I watched that game many times and read lots about it, and I learned new stuff uh, every other page at least about the game. So I think, you, uh, you know, kudos for that. Now, you talk in the book about the incredible TV ratings for that series. And of course, a lot of uh, a lot of people that are listen, be listening to this uh, saw you uh, not too long ago on uh, Fox Sports Ohio with George Grant and Chris Welsh, the Reds broadcast. And so television is obviously a big part of the game, but uh, – there's no way baseball and or the World Series are ever going to get back to that position, or is there? Well, no. I mean, this this is a period of time when baseball still was the big 
sporting event, maybe even the cultural event of the American fall. You know, the, they didn't call it the fall classic for nothing. And when this series proved to be as great as it was, almost every game in it was really compelling and dramatic. Um, and, and game six was kind of the, the highlight. I mean, 76 million people tuned in to watch this game on NBC that night. It lasted for four hours into the very wee hours of the next morning. It was almost 1 o'clock in the, the morning in, in the East Coast when this game ended. And Johnny Carson got preempted. I mean, almost everybody with a TV set was either watching or knew somebody who was watching that game. I mean, for perspective, a really um, well-watched Super Bowl these days will draw close to 50 million domestically. And here we're talking about more than a Super Bowl and a half watched this one baseball game. And I felt that was a remarkable moment, not just in baseball history, but in broadcasting history. Um, as it turned out, the record was broken again the next night. Even more people watched Game 7. So you're, you're talking about almost 150 million people between those two games watched the World Series. And I, I don't think we're going to see numbers like that again. Um, and so it, it made sense to look at this as kind of the, that's why I call it the triumph of America's pastime. I don't think baseball was ever this good uh, before or since in terms of what it meant to the people in this country who love this game. The end of an era, no doubt. Um, now, there are a couple of things I want to mention here before we uh, let you get out of here. I appreciate you, again, taking some time for us. But the first thing I want to ask you to uh, talk about is something that we like to talk about in terms of when we discuss the Big Red Machine uh, as Reds fans is it's an opportunity to discuss a couple of gentlemen, certainly Pete Rose and Joe Morgan, for uh, to remember them as they were back then rather than the way people uh, view them now. Joe Morgan's uh, the, the announcer now, and people know him as right. the announcer. A lot of guys don't know him as uh, just the incredible, incredible player that he was. And, of course, Pete Rose with all the mess that he's gotten himself into since People forget what a just amazing, uh, well, we would call him a force of nature at that time that he was. Uh, he really was, yeah. And uh, is that something that you really uh, discovered in, in approaching this book is just, uh, well, you may not have thought about it as an opportunity to sort of uh, review the way they were back then, but a lot of us really uh, like, the, like to be able to talk about how those guys were back then rather than the way people perceive them now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that they were both uh, supremely talented players. I mean, People always talked about Pete's effort and his grit and his hustle as if he didn't have the talents to back him up. I mean, he was a remarkably gifted athlete. Um, he just simply had the work ethic to go with it that, that elevated those skills. You know, he wasn't the most talented guy in baseball, but he was far from the least talented. And I think you forget about that. I also think you forget that as, as Reds fans, I, you know, people always appreciated the things that, that uh, Pete brought to the game, not the hustle, the, the way in which he actually would get under the skin of the other teams with, with the way he'd run to first, he'd run to, he'd run up to bat, he'd run to the outfield, he'd run everywhere. He, he just had this way about him that, that often got under the, the, the skin of rival players and, and, uh, and other fans. But that was his role on the team. He was the agitator. He was the guy who, who thrived with that kind of antagonism. He, he actually seemed to benefit from it. So he was just being true to himself and I think ultimately really helping the team because he was like the heat shield for that team. It, 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 he, he said, you know, if anybody wants to complain about this team, let them complain about me. The rest of you guys just, you know, you take care of business. That's a remarkable role uh, for a guy to play. 
on a roster like this. Um, and it, it's a shame that all the things that have happened to Pete since then, and you know, they've been repeated a thousand times, have, have obscured how truly amazing he was on the field. Um, and I hope that, you know, when the the last chapters are written, that that won't get obscured, um, because he he certainly is deserving of all the attention and the accolades that he got during his playing career. And on Joe's side, you know, he was just simply the best second baseman that baseball had ever seen. I mean, there there really wasn't even a, a close second. I mean, I guess you could say Rogers Hornsby, and great Hall of Fame second baseman, was great in his day, but. Joe was Joe meant more to his team and to this team than uh, almost any single player has ever meant in terms of their actual contributions. The way he he led this team with his bat, with his speed, with his power, with his fielding, with his field generalship. I mean, he was a remarkable uh, leader both on the field and in the clubhouse. And uh, I don't think we've seen a player like him since. Um, and you know he's he's now probably going to go into the Hall of Fame as announcer as an announcer as well. Been on ESPN for close to 20 years, but we shouldn't forget that we're also talking about the greatest second baseman who ever played the game at the same time. Exactly. Now we'll end with a quote that I I think summed up what your book is about uh, by Sparky Anderson, and he said, "We didn't win this World Series, baseball did." There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? There is, and you know. Because of all the people that came to watch this game and, and felt good about baseball again, felt that this really was America's pastime and that when it was at its best, there was nothing that came close to it in terms of the drama and the excitement and the interest. And Sparky was smart enough to see that this great series between these two great teams had not just been the, the climax and the, the crowning of that team he'd been working with for six years up to that point, but it was the return of baseball to center stage in America. And that was good for everybody involved with the game. Um, and then, as we know, you, you turn the page and free agency begins, and it's never the same. So when you talk about great teams and you talk about what they did for baseball, I think you have to talk about the 75-76 Cincinnati Reds as maybe the most important team in that regard that we've ever seen. Absolutely. Well, we'll let you uh, let you get out of here. I do appreciate you taking some time for us. It's Mark Frost. The book is Game Six: Cincinnati, Boston, and the 1975 World Series: The Triumph of America's Pastime. I'm telling you, you got to go out and get this book. We'll link it up on uh, at RedLegNation.com and encourage each of you to go read it. Mark, thanks for taking some time for us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.